If you have a Bible with you, I'd ask you to open it to 1 Thessalonians. Uh, we will be taking a, a bit of a, a detour from our regularly scheduled programming of John. Um, it's good every once in a while to uh, step away from books to be able to kind of be refreshed by other things in the New Testament uh, or in the Old Testament and scriptures in general. And uh, so we're going to be taking a break for uh, a couple of months in order to go through First and Second Thessalonians, these wonderful books that are, quite frankly, often neglected. Um, so please open to First Thessalonians as we will begin those, uh, the studies that we're going to be doing through those two books this morning. As you do that, though, I'm going to read from the book of Acts um, to kind of set the context. Acts is the history of the early church, and it provides much background and much context for almost all of the books that Paul writes in the New Testament. Not quite all of them, but for many of them. Um, and certainly it does for the books of First and Second Thessalonians. In Acts chapter 16, Paul was sent out. Uh, by the Spirit to go to Macedonia. He had apparently originally wanted to go east through Asia. The Spirit prevented him from doing that and sent him into Macedonia. Uh, there he first entered Philippi, where he met much resistance, although there was grace provided to the people of Philippi. Uh, nevertheless, he met much resistance, was found beaten and put in jail, uh, where he converted a jailer by singing praises to God in the middle of an earthquake. Uh, it's quite a wonderful story, and we don't have time to talk about it this morning. Um, having been released from there, he then travels to the town of Thessalonica. So after being beaten, wrongfully placed in prison, and then released, he goes to Thessalonica, and we read this in the beginning of chapter 17 of the book of Acts. Now when they, meaning Paul and Silas, when they had passed through Amphipolis and uh, excuse me, Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, saying, This Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks, and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous. And taking some of the wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob and set the city in an uproar and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason has received them, and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king Jesus. And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. So Paul and Silas find themselves in Thessalonica and they preach the gospel three weeks, it says. That might have gone on a little bit longer, but three weeks at the very least, going into the synagogue, arguing and proving that it was necessary that Christ would die and rise from the dead. The Jews were not happy with this, and just like Paul got beat before, this time there is a riot that forms because he's there. That riot then forces him to leave, and it is in this short span of time that many people come to the faith. A great number of people come to the faith. Not a few of the leading women, a great many of devout Greeks, along with several others. The important thing to gather from this is two things. First, the church at Thessalonica was indeed incredibly young. 
Paul is going to write the letter of 1 Thessalonians and possibly the letter of 2 Thessalonians within several months of this happening. They are two of the earliest letters that we get in all of the New Testament, which means that this young church, not that they were filled with 20-somethings with kids and were looking to you know, have this sort of nice life and Paul was going to give them that, but young in the Lord, that this young church would be left without the benefit of Paul there as he had to move along very quickly. So they were young and immature in the Lord, and they did not have one to guide and direct them in the scriptures with them. And Paul normally doesn't do things like this. He, he rarely plants churches and then leaves quickly, but he doesn't have a choice here. Thus, when we come to the book of 1 Thessalonians, what we find is somewhat amazing. What we would expect to find is something like 1 Corinthians or 2 Corinthians. We would expect to find that this young, immature church, with all of this cultural pressure being put on them, both from Jews and from Greeks, would have been crumbling at the seams. But instead, what we find is an incredible amount of thanksgiving from Paul, a church that seems not only set on its feet, but walking forward in the Lord, filled with good works, filled with good faith, and filled with a maturity that is well beyond the months I wouldn't even say years, the months in which they have been Christians. In light of all of that, this is a picture of what the church should be. It's not that they didn't have problems and not, not that they didn't need instruction, but certainly this church was at a place that is well befitting almost any church. When I was reading through this book several times, and, and especially our passage this morning, I was thinking back to a passage like Matthew 28, and as the Lord gives us what we would say is our vision statement, our mission in the world. And I remembered back to my master's degree when I was at seminary, and they were in the Billy Graham School of Missions, Evangelism, and Church Growth. We were given books that had to do with like creating a vision statement and creating a mission statement for your church. And I didn't like it then primarily because it was 375 very, very boring pages. That was not really what I had signed up to study. Um, but now I dislike it all the more because I'm not sure why churches have to come up with vision statements. I don't know exactly why they feel like they've got to craft their own. Now, at best, this is because churches get off track. Churches get busy doing tons of stuff that are good but, but are kind of scattered and spread. They get taken up more with doing good works than with proclaiming the gospel. And so vision statements can help you stay on track. That's fine. But why you need to come up with your own when we have our Lord himself giving us one of those is a bit beyond me. And so in Matthew 28, Jesus says these very famous words, go, therefore, baptizing, go and make disciples, excuse me, I, I was going to say you can do this from memory, but then I like halfway looked down and I didn't do it from memory. So it's easy to memorize, you just can't follow me in doing it. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you. That is a really good vision statement. And what 1 Thessalonians and 2 Thessalonians help us do is see that vision statement acted out. What does it look like when churches make disciples of all the nations? What does it look like when they are made into disciples and then they are then making disciples? This is what 1 Thessalonians and 2 Thessalonians help us see, especially this first chapter. We'll see that when we make disciples, we have people before us 
and people behind us. People have made us disciples. We are to follow the pattern of their life, follow the pattern that they have laid down for us, and at the same time, by necessity, we will then leave a pattern for those who come behind us. We are always being made into better disciples. We are always being made into people who follow Jesus more, and by doing that, we'll always be pulling up people to follow in our paths so that we are making disciples as well. So today, as we go to 1 Thessalonians, I hope that we can see how we can become better at both ends of that spectrum, how we can better become disciples and be better at being discipled and at becoming disciple makers. Let us read from Paul's writing to the Thessalonians, beginning in verse 1. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you, because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we prove to be, among you for your sake. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere, so that we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception that we had among you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. This is God's inerrant, holy, and infallible word. How can we become better at both being discipled and becoming disciple-makers, better at being able to be led in the Lord and also leading others in the Lord. The first thing that we can do to be better at that is recognizing. We need to be people who recognize the things around us, specifically two things in here. First, we need to recognize the good work of the disciple. Paul looks at the Thessalonians and he is unequivocally giving them praise for what he knows is going on there. He is not so taken up with total depravity that he cannot look, not either in himself or in the Thessalonians, that he cannot look at them and give them praise for what God is clearly doing among them. He talks about their work of faith. That is not just faith standing by itself, but that there is work that accompanies that faith. As much as Paul is able and needs to say that you are saved by faith alone, it is very clear that Paul never thinks that saving faith comes by itself. We are right to reject an equation that says faith plus works yields salvation. But the way you solve that problem is not simply by dropping works. It is by moving works to the other side. Faith yields salvation and works. And to have a faith that is true is always a faith that is active and living and doing. And so Paul says their work of faith, which for many people seems backwards or it seems incomplete or it seems too terribly complete. It's got too much there. But Paul is at home saying that faith is to work. Not only that, but they have a labor of love. Listen, 
The devil doesn't mind you having a bunch of declarations and proclamations, you having a whole bunch of thoughts and feelings and desires concerning love, so long as they stay exactly there. As they stay as thoughts and desires, as you can proclaim your love for people, as long as it always stays there and never actually gets into action, I don't think Satan minds that all that much. God himself was very clear that his love for us was in action. He didn't say that he loved us and then leave us to die, but sent his son to die for us, that we might be redeemed to him. And so love is always to be action-filled. If your love is simply an emotion, if it simply comes in thoughts and in abstract nouns, if you simply send your love to people but never act in love, it is nothing better than a thin love. But God calls for us to have a thick love, one that has substance and earnestness about it. And an earnest love always labors. Lastly, these people had not just works of faith and labors of love, but also a steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. This steadfastness is also a terribly active thing. A singer-songwriter I listen to has a, a line that says, Standing still isn't easy when the world's moving backwards. That is precisely what steadfastness is for. The world is always pulling you away from Christ. It is always pointing you to the things of the world to place your hope in them, to place your hope in science, to place your hope in technology, to place your hope in government, to place your hope in men and in women, in the things of the world. Place your hope there. It is always pulling you in hope away from Jesus Christ. So to stay steadfast is to be active. It is to cling unto Jesus with all you have and to trust in the hope that Jesus Christ gives and Jesus Christ gives alone. The hope of the Thessalonians was not in the hope of the world. Matter of fact, given their situation, it's almost impossible that it could have been. Their hope was found fully in Jesus Christ. So Paul, in looking back, and, and clearly part of this is the report that Timothy gave in chapter 3 that we read of, when Timothy shows up and reports all this good news about the Thessalonians, Paul not only hears it and thanks God for it, but importantly, thanks God for it and tells them that he thanks God for it. See good things in others and seek to fan that flame. Do you thank God for the good that you see in other people? Do you honestly look around you at the number of people in this church, the number of people that you know and have covenanted with, and say, I thank God for his faith. I thank God for his steadfastness during this difficult time. I thank God for her hope in the gospel. I thank God for her help and her presence. Do you honestly go before the Lord and not just give him praise for who he is, not just ask him for stuff, but earnestly and honestly thank him for the people that are surrounding you? And then what's more, to tell them and let them know that you thank God for that. Let them know that you are glad that they have these gifts and that they are growing evermore within them. Part of making disciples, friends, is helping other people know what is good, what is right and what is true and encouraging them in that walk. So yes, thank God for it, but let them know, encourage them in the Lord. And Paul is clearly doing this. He's going out of his way. He could have just said, I thank God for you, in sort of a perfunctory way, which has no content whatsoever. 
Paul also could have blown it off and say, I know that none of this is of you. I know that you didn't do a lick of this. I know that it's not part of you. I know that you're depraved. And he could list all the points of Calvinism that he possibly could get to and say, I know because of all of this, it's all of God and you guys didn't do it, but he doesn't do that either. And I would dare say that Paul is more Calvinistic than Calvin. Okay, maybe not. Maybe Calvin's, uh, it's probably worded wrong, but he's at least stronger on the sovereignty of God and stronger in the true nature of election and everything else and in total depravity than anyone else else could have been, okay? And he's still able to look at people and say, I thank God for these qualities that I see in you. So he recognized the good of the disciple, but also then recognized the good work of God. Given all of that, Paul is not blind to the reality behind all of this. He's not just giving these Thessalonians a pat on the back. He's not just giving them an attaboy. He's not writing them and saying, thank you for being this way. And he's also not writing them saying, aren't you grateful that I showed up and preached the gospel to you? You're welcome. But rather, what he does is he says, I thank God for the gifts that I see in you. He is not unaware that it is the working of God that has given these men and all of these women all of the good things that he has already talked about. It is a work of God that has done this. He says that he gives them thanks because he knows something in verse 4. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you. Like Just as we talked about last week, God's love might be over all people providentially in the way that world, the world works in creation. The sun rises, the sun sets, weather patterns bring rain, it brings drought. God's love is over all people that way. But in terms of salvation, God's love is specifically over those people that he has chosen from before the foundation of the world. He loves these Thessalonians salvifically. He has poured his love out in the gospel before them. And he's demonstrated this by doing this great work. How does Paul know this? How does he know that they have been chosen? How does he know that these people are beloved? He knows this in verse 5, because our gospel came to you not only in word, not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. He says, we didn't come and just speak. You didn't show up at a lecture and leave saying, that is something to ponder. Men can get up and they can speak words to one another. And we can perhaps bend and shape their proclivities to get them to do the things that we might want them to do or to take the actions that we might think are helpful for them. We can give them 10 action points on being a better husband and a better father or or 12 action points on how to not be a nagging wife or whatever the case might be. We can do all of that and we can bend them and shape them. But one thing we cannot do is give them a new nature. What Paul is saying here is that they didn't just show up with words. God speaks and reality is created. God speaks and there is power behind it. We speak and there is sort of a limp power. We can reframe reality with our words and we can reshape it and we can get people to think of things in a different way. But there is actually no power to create, no power to convert, no power to save in the things that we say. It is only because the word of God is filled with power and Holy Spirit and conviction. So Paul says, I didn't just come with words. There was power 
and Holy Spirit in full conviction. But I want you to notice something else. He says something and it's very important. He doesn't say, we came with power and with the Holy Spirit and with conviction. It's not about Paul. Paul doesn't say, again, it's really handy for you all that I showed up and not some other missionary because I come fully loaded. I've got you know a 12 gauge worth of power and I'm gonna convert all of you. If you listen to a lot of preachers, a lot of people who talk, it is really about them. And if you listen to their followers, it's exactly how you know they're proclaiming themselves that way because they talk about it like, oh, he's filled with power. Paul isn't filled with power. Paul doesn't even think that he's filled with power. Paul thinks that the gospel that he proclaims is filled with power. It's not that he showed up and he did a bunch of miracles that Acts, for some reason, leaves out. That, for some reason, weren't good enough to get him out of the riot that he found himself in. Rather, the power is the power to convert the Thessalonians. And he knows that the power was present because the Thessalonians, amidst affliction and trouble, bought into it. They literally walked into something where he said, hey, believe this and you're going to have a huge amount of trouble on your hands. And they're like, yeah, sign up. Right? That, that doesn't happen unless the power of God is working in them. And so Paul says, listen, the power of God, the Holy Spirit, and we preach with full conviction all of that was there. And it brings up a good question. I mean, why does Paul continue? Everywhere he goes, he's going to meet with problems. He's going to go to Berea after Thessalonica, and he's going to find that the Jews are going to follow him there. So he's going to go to Athens, and he's going to have trouble there, and he's going to go to Corinth. And Corinth is going to work out kind of well, but there's going to be a lot of trouble in Corinth. I don't mean to you know, spoil the end of it for you, but read First and Second Corinthians, and there's a lot of trouble there. Everywhere Paul goes, he's going to find trouble. And yet he is willing to go before these people who have, in human terms, no right to buy into the things that Paul is saying. And he expects, he expects that they are going to. He expects that people are going to believe and move on. That they are going to buy into the Lord Jesus Christ. That they will allow tribulation and anxieties to come upon them so that they might hope in a future coming of the Son. Why does he do this? Why don't we, in our evangelism, persist in the same way? I would guess that because Paul is really like these Thessalonians, there was no reason for Paul to be converted. And he knows personally the power of the work of the Word and the Holy Spirit coming upon him. In one moment, he was a persecutor of the church, willing to throw people in prison and to travel quite a ways to do it, to stand by while people murdered other people. He was venomous and ravenous against the church. And the next moment, he was blind and knowing that he was going to suffer much for the cause of the one he was persecuting just two moments before. Paul knew the power of God. And friend, one of the ways that you will be helped in thinking that the power of God is in the preaching of the word, that the power of God is in the gospel, is to remember your own conversion and to stop wondering about how you were before you were converted, about the path that you took. It's easy to look at people and think, well, they don't have the, the introspection that I had when I was first saved, and I don't see any signs in them of really wanting the word. They don't seem to have, have a thirst for God. They don't have a thirst for the word. They, they're not actually looking for truth. They're not actually... Uh, very religious at all, and they seem fairly indifferent to everything around them. But friend, you are not some like spiritual cocoon just waiting to blossom. You were a hardened sinner, and the word of God came to you. And any introspection you had was a gift of God. Any repentance you had was a gift of God. 
Any faith gift. All of it. Just as God is at work in the salvation of the Thessalonians, he was at work in you. If you have been saved, it is because of the grace of God. It is not because of anything inherent in who you are. And therefore, as you preach the gospel to the world, realize that they have to give you absolutely no sign before God reaches down and converts them in an instant. It is the word of God that is powerful. It is the word of God that changes people. God does this because he has chosen them. Realize the beauty of that. Before Paul showed up in Thessalonica, before Paul was called to be a missionary, before he showed his face or before the face of Jesus was shown to him, before Jesus incarnated himself on the earth, before God sent the prophet Isaiah to Israel, before Israel was performed, before God created anything at all, he had signed down the names of these Thessalonians in a book and said that I will bring them to salvation through the apostle Paul because I am ordaining my love to be over them. It is the power of God to bring salvation. And if you are by chance lucky enough to be called a Christian, then it is your also good providence to be able to go out and be the means by which God brings other sinners to repentance. Not because of your brilliant preaching, not because of your deep and abiding knowledge of the word, simply because God is generous and gracious to us. So, to truly know how to make disciples, we must recognize the work of God in all of the business that we are in. Paul knows this, so he thanks God. He reminds them that God showed up and God converted them. And at the same time, he is more than willing to say, and I see the work of God in you. Paul desires to bring the Thessalonians on further and further and further by recognizing what is around them. But secondly, they also replicate we must be replicating. To become better at being disciples and disciple-making, we must not only recognize, but we must replicate. At the end of verse 5, we have a very strong turn in the nature of our passage. Unfortunately, the ESV, the Holman Standard Version, the NIV, many of them kind of flatten this out, and they flatten it out because English. Basically, we don't like long run-on sentences, and your, your English teachers tried to beat that out of you when you were young, although now that you text, you don't care about it anymore. But when you were younger, they tried to beat that out of you, and, and the writers here tried to do that as well. So at the end, of, kind of in the middle of verse 5, we say, uh, the gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit with full conviction, period. Capital Y, you know what kind of men we proved to be. But, and I don't often do this, I will throw a bone to the New American Standard and the Old King James, they keep it in there. There is a little word, means just as. In other words, just as the word of God came, so also came the men of God. That Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy came as well. In other words, just as the power of the gospel came to convert them, so the example of the missionaries came to lead them in life. Just as the word gave them power to become Christians, the example of these missionaries gave them perspective to live as Christians. This is where your life is found. It is here in the gospel. And we are examples of how you should live your life. And be very clear. I don't mean for this to sort of short circuit and to uh, extinguish 
the fire that we have for sola scriptura. Scripture is our only infallible guide, and it is sufficient for all things. And so we should understand that even in the case of the first century people. However, while that is the case, it is clear that we don't read the word of God outside of a context, whether it's a social context or a historical context. And as such, we are always relying on tradition in some way, shape, or form to form our understanding of what is before us. And the tradition that Paul carried with him was in himself. This is how you live amidst trial and tribulation. This is how Christians handled themselves. So the Thessalonians, seeing Paul continually in trouble during the weeks while he was there, seeing him argue and wrestle with the Jews, realized and came to follow the pattern that he had set down for them. This is why he goes on to say, you became imitators of us. You saw the way that we handled the persecution. You saw the way we handled the tribulation. And you followed in our example. That just as much Paul taught them orthodoxy, right thinking, he also lived out orthopraxy and right living. So in the immensely short time that Paul was there, a month, at most, a month and a half, I mean, Luke says that they were there for three weeks, week after week after week in the synagogue. Maybe there was a, an extended time after that, but he doesn't really make it seem so. We're talking a matter of weeks. They picked up on enough of Paul's living. They were so embedded with Paul that they were able to watch him and understand how it is that they were to live their lives. Therefore, they started to imitate or mimic these missionaries. Interestingly enough, he goes on to say, you became imitators of us and of the Lord. Now the question is, how do they become imitators of the Lord? Because Jesus didn't come back down simply say, okay, well now the Thessalonians are converted. Now I've got to go down and talk to them about how to live their lives. And it's clear that not only did the Lord not come down, but it's not as though Paul handed them a copy of Mark and said, read and learn. This letter was written about A.D. 50, perhaps the earliest New Testament book that we have. The Gospels weren't around. Stories of who Jesus was were passed around. These sort of well-known incidents in his life were probably part and parcel of the preaching of Paul. But it's also clear that when Paul says this, he likely means you became imitators of the Lord as you imitated me. After all, he says in 1 Corinthians, become imitators of me or imitate me as I imitate the Lord. Friends, if you think, if you think that you are mature, would you even dare to be willing to look at somebody who is less mature than you and to say that to them? Not in pride. It's clear that boasting is sort of excluded from this. It is the Lord who does the work of faith and the labor of love and the steadfastness of hope. It is the Lord that has provided all of those things. But nevertheless, Paul is able to look at them and say, be imitators of me as I imitate Christ. You imitated me, and in imitating me, you found yourself imitating Christ. This is what it means to be mature in the Lord. You don't say it boastfully, but you think rightly, if you were mature, that people should be able to come alongside you. Watch the way you live your life. Watch how you handle your relationships and your family. Watch how you handle the relationships at your job and at your business. Watch how you read the word, how you're devoted to the things of God, how you handle yourselves in, in terms of, of conflict and anxieties, and say, this is how you live. Now for us, that certainly also implies this is how you repent. 
That is a high calling. This is the calling of making disciples. So when Jesus says, make disciples, he means as I have made you disciples, so you were to go out and make more disciples of me. This is what we are called to. And his word didn't come to them lightly. As we said, they received the word in much affliction, but with joy. So the word was hard. It meant that they were going to be assigned a lot with a rioter. In the first century, when cities rioted, Rome stomped. So to be considered part of a riot, and specifically, as these gentlemen and these ladies would have been considered the cause of the riot, means very likely that the people of Thessalonica would not have forgotten that it was the Christians who almost brought the foot of Rome down upon us. And to think that there wouldn't have been more persecutions after Paul leaves the scene. Acts follows Paul. It doesn't talk about the aftermath, which was clearly grave. And yet, like Paul and like Christ, they not only received the word with affliction, they not only suffered for the word of God, but they did it with joy. They followed Paul and they followed Christ. But then something even more miraculous happens. The world followed them. He goes on to say, you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. For the word of God has sounded forth from you. It rang out. Now, Thessalonica is on this huge, important road. So if you're leaving from Rome and you're going anywhere in the east and you're not going to travel by boat, you're going to go through the Via Ignatia. That road is a huge thoroughfare. And Thessalonica was a very large city, so it's got traffic going in and out. And I don't think that this was this three-week-old church saying, okay, now we've got the gospel, let's send out some missionaries. What it was, was just traders would come in. They would speak the word of God to them. They received it with joy and, and affliction, but joy. And they would say, hey, did you hear about Jesus? Let me tell you about Jesus. Or even as some of the Thessalonians would have had to have gone out to be able to do their jobs, to go trade at foreign cities. They would take the gospel with them. The gospel went out from them as a natural way of just the living of their lives. But more than that, the report of their faith went out as well. Not just the word of the Lord, as wonderful as that is, but your faith has gone out everywhere. That it almost beats Paul to where he's going. So it's like Paul shows up in Berea and he shows up in Athens and he wants to tell the people in Athens about the Thessalonians. He said, listen, if you want a really good example of the way an early church is supposed to to hold themselves, is supposed to put up with persecution, put up with suffering, and grab onto the gospel. Ha let me tell you about the Thessalonians. And they're like, no, we know all about the Thessalonians. We don't need that, Paul. And you can almost sense that Paul's like, oh man, that was a good point. Bummer. I lost that example. He's like, is beating him everywhere. He wants to go around bragging on them, and by the time he gets to where he's going, they've already been bragged on. He doesn't need to open his mouth to talk about this example. The word of their faith spread. Friends, I'm going to tell you, this is uncontrollable for good and for ill. The way in which you carry the name of Christ is uncontrollable. I don't mean that you can control the way you carry it, but that it's carried forward is uncontrollable. The people who know you as Christian will form the basis of what they think of Christians based off of what they see of you. And you cannot unload that burden, nor can you decide to put more of it on it is just the way it is. 
When people find out that you're a Christian, they find out in your workplace, your family finds out, and they look at you, they're going to say, well, that's what a Christian does. The question is, is it going to be like the Thessalonians, where it is a good example, or is it going to be like the Corinthians, who are bringing shame upon the name of Jesus Christ? Because you can't fix it. It is just the nature of the world. The Thessalonians are an example, but they are a good example. As they've walked through this tribulation, they have shown what it means to cling tightly on to Jesus, to labor in love, to have works of faith, to be a church that is growing and maturing in love and in the glory of God. And as that, they're showing precisely what it means to both be a disciple and to make disciples. We replicate. We preach the word. We tell people to come alongside us and follow us. Hebrews 13.7 says this, that you are to remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Literally, come up alongside them and say, can I just watch how you handle yourself? Like, can I, can I sit at your table and peck your brain for how I'm supposed to live? Church, why don't we do this? Why don't we have younger Christians begging older Christians to show them how to be mature? Why don't we have mature Christians going to younger Christians, pulling them alongside and say, come with me, let's sit down daily and work through these things. Let me show you my way of life. Imitate me as I imitate Jesus. Certainly there are people who do this somewhat. I would hope that I do a bit of it, but we can certainly all get better. If you are a young believer in the Lord, find someone who is mature. Cling on to them, pester them, and say, Pastor Doug told me that I could do this. I am going to bother you until you help me mature, because I want to work toward that. For you, those of you who are more mature, find somebody that you can come alongside. Don't say, listen, the, the wrong way to handle this is to say, I've seen your way of life, and I know that you're not quite as mature as me, so I'm going to help you out. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is find somebody that you can partner with to help you become a better disciple and you can help that person become a better disciple. This is not something that should have to be programmed. It's not a program. We don't have to make a discipling program. Two plus two equals four or something like that. That's not, this is natural. Paul didn't have time to set up anything. He came to him, he preached the word of God, he showed him how to live and he took off. And then what happens? Brilliant. The Spirit works it out. They're doing naturally what disciple-making should. He didn't necessarily have to cast the vision, but they caught it. They're making disciples, teaching other disciples how to obey everything that Jesus had commanded them. So, we replicate, we recognize, and lastly, we remember. All of this is not the making of virtue for virtue's sake. We do not want people to follow our example simply so that we can make them look more like us. We have to remember that there's something else behind it. Virtue is not an end, of its, an end in and of itself, but it is simply a means to an end. We're not just trying to pass down a pattern of living, a way in which you can be a better human being. Paul says here, they report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. 
What rang out was the word of God. What rang out was the gospel. What rang out was the fact that this gospel converts people from serving dead and mute and deaf idols who do not care about you because they cannot live. These things that long for our desires to be for them, our desire for entertainment, our desire for success, our desire for sex, our desire for money, our desire for all of the things that the world provides for us, all of those desires, all of the things that promise us to fulfill those desires are nothing but dead and empty ends. And the end of those things is not just emptiness, but it is the wrath of God. He says the gospel goes out and it converts us from that. It turns us in repentance from serving those things to serving the living and true God, not false gods who promise us false things and never even deliver on those. He says not only that, but you wait for his son from heaven. You wait. This is, given what he's going to say in 2 Thessalonians, is waiting for justice to come. He's telling these people who are suffering under tribulation, who are suffering under persecution and oppression, he says, you just hold on because Jesus will come and he will make it right. So they wait. Jesus, whom God raised from the dead, is the great bulwark and citadel of our salvation. Because when he comes, he will gather those who belong to him and he will lay waste to everyone else. So we are not simply making people nicer people. We're not simply making people better people. We're not simply making people more moral. We've got a better purpose than that. We are making people who love the Son so they might run to him, kiss him, and escape the wrath that is to come because they've placed their hope and their faith in him. Jesus Christ came to this world not to condemn the world because it was condemned already. He came to this world to save his people from their sins by taking their sins on him, by paying the penalty for it, by allowing us then to go free so that everyone who confesses and believes in him might not be under the wrath that they are clearly under as Jesus is going to deliver it from us. I'm reminded again of Psalm 212. Kiss the son, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. It doesn't mean that he's a hothead. It means that you don't know when he's coming, and he can come in an instant. Therefore, blessed are all that psalm ends who take refuge in him. Here, the thought is exactly the same. It is Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. We're not making disciples because God knew life was long and we needed something to do. He didn't think that we needed some sort of summer project like all of my kids do. But rather, we make disciples because God wants people from every tribe and tongue and nation and language to escape the coming wrath, which is sure to come. Therefore, as we go, we make disciples. We baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and we teach them to obey all that Jesus has commanded us. We make them, we become better at it, and we all move forward for the glory of God. Let us pray. Father, let us be people who are thankful to you for the good we see in others. Let us be a church that encourages one another all the more as the day draws near. Let us be people who speak of the good we see you doing in one another, pressing on in our discipleship 
to be better representatives of you and help others to do the same. Let us be this way, Father, for only those who are disciples of your Son will be saved from the coming wrath. Therefore, let us turn in repentance and faith from the cold, lifeless, wretched idols that we have served and wait in humble expectation for the grand and glorious return of our Lord Jesus Christ. May we serve you in this way always and faithfully for your glory and for our good. Amen.